are making their way back, you can turn with me to the book of Galatians. We are continuing our series there, and we will be starting in chapter 2 today. Um, before we begin, though, just bow your heads with me and, and pray together. Lord, we want to look into your word this morning, and we want to see clearly the truth of your gospel. And we want to be changed by that truth. And specifically, Lord, I pray that as we see the truth of your gospel, our hearts would cleave to it, that our hearts would cling to it, that we would be drawn closer to the cross, closer to Jesus, closer to the place where you made perfect atonement for all our sins, for our deepest needs. And in that, Lord, would you also give us a vision for unity. And give us a vision for the way that the truth of your gospel and the power of your cross brings your people together in solidarity. Brings your people together to worship. Brings your people together to stand united for the glory of their God. That in Jesus, you redeemed and ransomed a people from every tribe and nation and tongue for your praise and your glory. So God, I pray you would help us to see that this morning. See it in this letter in Galatians and see and understand and taste by the power of your spirit that it is your word and your truth that unifies us in this way. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was in seminary, I think it was actually my last year of seminary, I was taking, invited to take an advanced preaching class. And we all had to take a couple of preaching classes in seminary. And the fancy word for the preaching class was a homiletics class. And I remember the first time I heard that word, feeling very insignificant, thinking, what is homiletics? <laughs> and it's just a fancy word for preaching. And so I was taking part in this sort of a homiletics to advanced preaching class. And this was a unique one in the sense that normally in seminary, you take a preaching class and you prepare a sermon and you stand up in front of a room of your peers and like 15 or 20 people and you preach your message. And it's sort of this contrived environment you're in a classroom it's stale it's 15 other seminarians and everybody's jotting down notes did this well oh major fail there missed this point you know it's all critique oriented and and then there's good aspects of that and everything but it's just sort of strange well the nice thing about this class that i was taking was this advanced preaching class was an opportunity for a few of us to actually go out and do our homiletics two course in the context of an actual church and so we partnered with a church in the Twin Cities area, and we were actually able to go into this church over the course of a couple weekends, and the six of us all had an opportunity to preach a live sermon to a real-life audience. And we had our other classmates and the, the two pastors that were teaching the class in the audience as well, and they were still doing the critique. But it was just kind of sort of a neat, live environment. Well, in this context, one of the individuals in this class preached a sermon on John 17. And this, this guy was very bright. He was a really intelligent individual. I would have considered him a friend, more than just an acquaintance, and had some, some helpful conversations and dialogues with him when I was at seminary. But he preached the sermon that morning on John 17, and it's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And the text he preached from was this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, 
even as we are one. And that was the text he used, which is a great text. It's one of the most significant texts in the gospel as Jesus prays for the church he's about to die for. But what was interesting was the point my fellow seminary student was making from the text. The point and kind of application he drew from it was this. Unity. The unity of the body of Christ is the be-all, end-all. We have to strive for unity. He looked at this text and he said, unity is how God is glorified. And so if there's disunity in the church, God is dishonored. Whatever we do, the church must be unified. Now, it wasn't necessarily wrong. But if that's all we say about unity, it isn't right either. What it is, is incomplete. Unity in the church does glorify God. But, as we're going to see in our text this morning, it's not just any kind of unity. So, turn with me now to Galatians 2, verse 1, and read with me through verse 10. This is what Paul writes. He's continuing this sort of biographical section of the letter. He says, Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery... To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Sabine, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. I think here's the point that Paul is making in these verses. The truth of the gospel is what unites us in mission. The truth of the gospel is the thing that unites us. So while my seminary friend wasn't incorrect to say that God is glorified in unity, it's not just any sort of unity, it's a particular kind of unity. And that's what Paul is pointing us to in this text. I just want to really make two points this morning. We're actually probably going to return to this text next week and pull out one more detail from it. So this is sort of part one on these verses. And I only want to make two points this morning. And the first is simply, truth trumps. Truth trumps. The cornerstone of the gospel 
is truth. Now, if we remember last week, Paul was working to establish that he was independent. Do you remember that point that we were making? If you're a guest, this is your first time here. Last week, we looked in chapter 1, and we saw Paul arguing and making and building the argument that he didn't receive his gospel from the other apostles. This wasn't some sort of borrowed gospel. It wasn't a second-hand gospel, right? But the question now that he's addressing is, okay, Paul, if you're independent and your gospel is not borrowed, is your gospel broken? Is your gospel correct? Did that revelation that he says he received here in this text, he said it again in chapter 1 previously, did that revelation that Paul received align with the revelation the other apostles claimed to have received? So he goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. There's some debate about how long this took place after his conversion. I think it's probably 14 years after he's converted that he returns to Jerusalem. So it's his second trip back to Jerusalem. The first one was very brief. Remember, it was 15 days with Peter. The only other apostle he saw was James. And now after his time in Arabia and Damascus, he's, he's coming back. He's, he's studied. He's done the work of the gospel. He's got Barnabas and Titus with him. He, he's coming back. And he says to them, after 14 years, this is why he's come back. I went up because of a revelation. So remember, that's how he received the gospel. Jesus on the Damascus road. Paul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? He receives the gospel commission there. And he says, because of that revelation, I went to Jerusalem and I set before them, that is the apostles, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, that is a shocking statement. That is one of the strangest statements we see in the entire letter. Is Paul actually worried that he's gotten the gospel wrong? Is that what he's saying there? Is he saying, I went to Jerusalem because I had to make sure. I wanted to make sure that for the last 14 years... I wasn't running in vain and proclaiming the wrong message. To run in vain in this context literally means that all of the work that Paul had done wouldn't stand at the final judgment. That when the refining fire is burned on our life's works, Paul is saying, I was worried my ministry would get burned up with the straw and the dross. Well, if we remember last week, we can categorically rule out that he thinks his message is wrong, right? That was his whole point last week. This isn't Paul's message or Peter's message. It's God's message, and I received it independently. I received it from God. And so it's established on the words of Christ. So it would be totally incongruous with what he just said in chapter 1 if Paul is actually wondering, did I get it right? So what's going on here? What's happening? Well, Paul doesn't know what's going to happen at this meeting. It's not that Paul is doubting the veracity of his message. He's not sure, humanly speaking, what's going to happen when he sits down with these other apostles. Will the other apostles support him in the accuracy of his gospel? Or will they oppose it? He has opponents that are doing just that. He refers to them in this text. Will they seek to undo his faithful gospel work? You see, if Peter 
and James and John, these, these pillars he refers to, and that's basically just saying, these are the guys who carried the most authority in the early church. These are the men whose opinions mattered. If these guys came out against Paul's message, his ministry was essentially done. That's what's at stake here. Not because his gospel would be wrong, but because practically people will accuse him of being an innovator. And not only that, Paul's not going to back down from his message. He knows that if this meeting goes poorly, there's going to be a schism in the church. Principally, he didn't need their approval because he knows his message is from God, right? That was, that was last week, the last couple of weeks. He's, he's independent. He's received it as a revelation from God. But practically, he needs their assistance in promoting his work. Paul wants to ensure unity. And that might kind of seem like a strange thing when you think of some of the ways he speaks in Galatians, right? He's, he's working for unity? That's a different way to work for unity, Paul. He, he is working for unity. He wants to prevent schism. He wants to do everything he can to prevent discord in the house of God. But not at the price of truth. So he takes Titus, a Gentile, a Greek, a non-Jew... And he points out explicitly in this text, I took Titus with me, and I was intentional in taking Titus with me, and I made sure that he was not forced to be circumcised. Now, it may be, it's not clear, it may be that he's saying there was even pressure while he was in Jerusalem to get Titus circumcised. Whatever he's saying there, he says, not for a second did I consider submitting Titus to the act of circumcision. I brought this Gentile with me, but there was no way he was going to be cut. That might smooth things out relationally for a little bit. Man, if, if Paul brings Titus, you know, his, his apprentice in the ministry, and he, and he has him circumcised, then all this is just going to blow over. So don't you care about making sure we're just one happy church, Paul? It'd be so, so simple. I mean... Kind of stinks for Titus, but for the good of the church, man, take one for the team. No, Paul says. Not for a moment. And he wouldn't do it because the truth of the gospel is at stake. Listen how he says this. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, Here's why. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. God could care less who seems to be pillars in the church according to us. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, here's what Paul is saying. First, the issue of circumcision is massive. Now, that's sort of the issue that's been sort of looming in the background up to this point in the, in the series, right? Circumcision and works of the law. I mean, that, that's what people think about when they hear Galatians. I mean, that, that was sort of Luther's rallying cry with, with the letter and what he was doing with the church in the Reformation was reclaiming, we can't let the gospel be sent back into bondage. We can't capitulate on these issues. Well, this is the first time in the letter that Paul actually mentions circumcision. This major issue that's going on in Galatia, 
the major thing that sits in the background and is really putting all of this pressure upon Paul and upon Barnabas and his ministry partners and really upon the entire early church is finally mentioned here. And it's really just a brief mention. He's not even really pulling into it in depth yet. But what he notices and what he says is that this issue is huge. It's such a big deal that men are pushing for circumcision. These men who are calling for guys like Titus, non-Jews, to be circumcised. That Paul, what does he call them? He says they're false brothers. In other words, Paul says, you know these individuals who are seeking to have Gentiles cut? They're not Christians. They think they are. And some of you think they are, but they're not. And Paul says, I didn't back down for a moment. He's, he's utterly unwilling to tolerate the notion that Titus be circumcised. If he had, unity would have been achieved. But the truth of the gospel would have been lost. And for Paul, truth trumps. Truth trumps unity at this point by demanding circumcision these individuals are adding works to faith in essence they're saying faith is really important you need to believe in jesus to be a christian you you have to to put your faith in him you have to you have to trust in him you have to rely on him but your faith isn't enough it's important it's essential even they're saying but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to obey the Old Testament law. You've got, you've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got to obey the kosher food rules. You've got to wear certain garments. It, it's Jesus plus circumcision and all these other things. It's fundamentally faith plus works. They're not saying Jesus is irrelevant. Would be clear on that? They wouldn't have had any sort of influence in the early church if they were saying that. They're not saying Jesus is irrelevant. They're saying Jesus is insufficient. You need something more. And we all have little corners of our hearts where we think the same way. We all have little false gospels and little functional saviors where if we examine them closely are just our own version of circumcision. It's our own version of saying, yes, Jesus is essential. But I need Jesus or I needed Jesus and now I'm doing these things. I'm following these religious rituals. I'm doing these ethical things, these moral actions. It's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus this practice. It's the cross plus this moral action. It's the cross plus voting this way million little very subtle things some of them which are very good in and of themselves but when we add them to jesus in the equation of the gospel they become deadly things that we think in our subconscious maybe way in the back of our minds this is it this is the thing that i do really makes me right with God. When I do this thing on a certain day, I don't feel condemnation the rest of the day because I know God loves me because I did this. 
or I said this, or I promoted this. The main problem in our lives is that we try to add things to Jesus. That's what Paul is confronting here. By claiming Jesus isn't quite enough, Paul says, you know what you're doing? You're going back into bondage. That's what's at stake. The little gospel addendums, little things we add and tack on to the end of the gospel, kill freedom, Paul says. They will send you back into slavery. If you're experiencing a lack of freedom in your life in Christ, if there's just sort of this constant sense of condemnation or dread, constant sense of guilt, it's very possible, maybe even likely, that you're guilty of adding something to the gospel. Because as soon as you add something, you know what happens? The yoke of slavery sits right back around your neck again. And that yoke of slavery will feel like condemnation. And it will feel like guilt. And it will feel like a burden. And it will feel like a duty. And there will be fleeting moments where you feel like, I did it. I feel good. I I feel right with God. He loves me more today. But they're fleeting. And at the end of the week, and at the end of the month, the weight will just rest on your shoulders. That's what Paul is saying here. In fact, he would say, the way you add something to Christ may, may mean that you aren't even a Christian. That's what's happening with these false brothers. They're so entrenched and so explicit about their addendums. In other words, it's not subtle things. It's not things they're vaguely aware of and struggling against, but they're so committed to their addendums that it means they're not even an authentic believer. They've corrupted the gospel in their commitment to these additions they've given to Jesus. But these false believers thought they were believers. Well, Paul will die on this hill because he knows if truth falls, everything else falls with it. Unity without truth would be empty. Spirituality without theology without, that is to say, accurate gospel understanding, would be empty. It would be actually slavery. Now, one of the distinguishing marks of our culture is that we want spirituality, right? People all around us in our culture want spirituality. There really aren't that many people who are outright, out-and-out atheists. I want nothing to do with God, and I want nothing to do with spirituality. There's some. There's some very public and visible ones. But most people in our culture are searching for some sort of spiritual experience, some sort of spiritual engagement with some sort of God. Maybe they're even searching for a spiritual engagement with the God of Christianity, the true and living God. Well, what marks our culture is that we want experience and relational intimacy and encounters with God, but without having to engage our minds, without having to think rightly about God. Or, I want relational intimacy with God, but not in such a way where I have to think about God and consider how He would have me live in light of who He is and live differently. I I just want the intimacy. I don't want to have to change. I don't want anything that actually would affect the way I go about living my life. 
I want to feel the blessings of the union with Christ without having to actually consider and believe and trust in the theology of what actually created such a union. That's the way our culture thinks. Paul confronts this modern misconception head on. He says, if you lose the truth of the gospel, you will be cut off from the gospel's power, from the gospel's influence, from the gospel's joy, from the gospel's freedom, from the gospel's grace. So this entire pursuit of spirituality, of of real spiritual experiences, of of engaging with God and drawing close to God, well, Paul says, you can forget about all of that. If you cut off and you compromise the truth of this message. And then Paul says, this strange little phrase, the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. What does he mean by that? What he's saying there is, essentially, they ratified my gospel. My gospel is independent, and then after 14 years, I came to Jerusalem, and I don't care a lick for who was influential, but I knew, humanly speaking, it was important. I knew the church viewed these men as influential. They had been gifted by God. There was a grace and calling upon their life. And so I came. I only care about what God thinks, but I know the church thought they were influential, so I came, and I brought my message to them. Not that I was submitting it to them for their approval, but I was bringing it to make sure, are we on the same page? I want to make sure that you're not messing up what I know has been God's message to me. And he says... They added nothing to me. In other words, Paul says, I can say confidently, not only is my gospel independent, my gospel is not an innovation. I had faithfully preached the gospel from A to Z. There was no part of the salvation story. There was no part of the significance of what Christ did on the cross that Paul had left out. He had gotten the message perfectly right. Now, When they heard this, Paul says, when they understood, when they they saw the message, they agreed with him. They didn't have to add anything to it. And in essence, they said, Paul, we stand together. So Paul is excited that they have unity. And we're going to look at that in a second. But he's first concerned that they've established the truth. Because unity without truth is a deadly peace. I love how J.C. Riles put this. J.C. Riles says this, Peace without truth is a false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. And Paul uses similar language to that in Galatians, doesn't he? Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. We ought to contend jealously for the truth and to fear the loss of the truth more than the loss of peace. To maintain pure truth in the church, we should be ready to make any sacrifice, to hazard any peace, to risk dissension and run the chance of division. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. We should no more tolerate false doctrine than we would tolerate sin. To regularly hear unscriptural teaching is a serious thing. It is a continual dropping of slow poison into the mind. So let us receive nothing, believe nothing, follow nothing which is not in the Bible nor can be proved by the Bible. The truth trumps. The truth comes first. The truth is the priority. The truth of the gospel is non-negotiable. It must be defended to the hilt. Paul shows us that it must be contended for, even at the cost 
of so-called unity. And people in our culture love unity, right? When we are careless in our precision with the gospel, souls are put at risk. The defense of the truth of the gospel must be established and held and taught and defended and contended for. Truth trumps, Paul says. But gospel truth, once it has been established, must also unify. Truth trumps. Truth comes first. Truth takes preeminence. Mr. Ryle is right. But we shouldn't have to choose between the two. You see, if the first point is that truth trumps, the second point is this. Truth, accurate gospel truth, unifies. Commitment to truth, commitment to the gospel, should produce the kind of unity that actually glorifies Christ. I love how G.K. Chesterton puts this. He says, and he just has a way with pithy little sayings and phrases. There was never anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. And I think what he's saying in our context is truth trumps. It's exciting. Orthodoxy, right doctrine, right belief. It's necessary. It's foundational. It's powerful. But oh, it can be perilous. If we stop there and we don't see the way that truth and right thinking and right theology, accurately understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, also leads to a God-glorifying unity in the church of Christ. I think we can put that commentary on Chesterton's quote. The truth of the gospel is the very thing that gives us something to unite about. Churches and Christians who try to promote unity before truth seldom end up with long-term unity. And this is really what mainline more liberal denominations have been doing for the better part of the 20th century. They've been trying to say, we need to be ecumenical, right? We're going to have the World Council of Churches and we're all going to gather together under one tent. We're going to sing Kumbaya. We're going to hold hands. It's going to be great. We're going to break bread together and there's going to be unity. The problem is, if you put unity first, it usually doesn't last because even if there's some short-term fruit, which is really debatable because you've often sacrificed significant portions of truth to get there, the question usually becomes, ultimately, at some point down the road, in the long term, can somebody remind me again, what were we united about? You know, we started with this whole idea of unity, and it was, it was great. We, we unified, and, and we tried to unify around ethical ideas, and so it became the social gospel. Or we tried to unify around institutions, and so... We combined denominations. And, and then we tried to unify around schools. And so we combined seminaries. And, and it was really great. We had all this unity. And now, 50 years later, I'm left wondering, we are unified. But why and what for? There's no truth left there. And if you start trying to define and articulate the truth after you've unified, all of a sudden people start saying, well, hold on. That wasn't why I agreed to unify. If you want to define it that way, then I'm out. You can't flip the matter. You don't start with unity. You arrive there once you've defended and established the truth. But once you've defended and established the truth, you can't stop until unity is reached. I think that's the point Paul is making here. In verse 9 he says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, 
perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. We need to see it in Galatians. We need to feel it in our morrow. We, we need to feel it deep. The non-negotiable of embracing gospel purity and clarity for the purpose of gospel unity. The truth of the gospel. What Paul says in verse 5 that he has fought to preserve for us. I fought to protect the truth of the gospel, Paul says. Naturally and necessarily leads James and Cephas and John to extend their hand in unity. They have to. Once they perceive that Paul is with them doctrinally, once they perceive that Paul has the gospel right, they have to reach out their hand, don't they? You're with us, brother. You're one of us. It's so significant. Our world wants us to think that these ideas, unity and truth, are diametrically opposed. These are at other ends of the spectrum, and you've got to choose between the two of them. You can stand with us and be unified. Or you can stand over there with the stodgy truth crowd and be divisive. You can be cool. We've got cool wristbands and Hollywood loves us. You can be over here. Or you can be over there and we call you dirty names and we'll say nasty things about you. But you can't have both. You can't put the two together. Tolerance is the only way to unity. Doctrinal fidelity, they'd claim, only leads to division and divisiveness. But what happens in Galatians is exactly the opposite. Paul is showing us here that he is unwavering in the fight for gospel truth. He is un I will not flinch in this. Not for a moment was I tempted to have Titus cut. The gospel was at stake. And not for a second was I going to give in. But that had the inevitable consequence of gospel unity. The fight for vigilance in rightly proclaiming Christ crucified is so that we avoid Christ dishonoring sinful discord. I hope I never preach and you never hear a sermon at Providence that leaves you feeling like I did after my fellow seminarian preached that sermon on John 17. I hope we never sit here and hear that we have to choose between doctrinal clarity and true, authentic Christian unity. What magnifies Christ, Paul says, is audaciously proclaiming and defending the gospel in all its purity, secure in the knowledge that this action will bring about the unity and peace Christ prayed for. And we actually see this in John 17. The text that my friend preached as an exclusive text for unity Remember, I pray, Father, that you would make them one as you and I are one, that as they are one, you would be glorified. They have to be unified or you won't get glory, God, was his point. Well, listen to what he left out. What happens just before that in John 17. Just prior in the prayer, Jesus says, I have given them your word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays for God glorifying unity in John 17. Absolutely he does. But he also and first prays that we be established in the word, that we would be sanctified in truth, that we would be firm in the message of the gospel. Listen how Paul puts this in his own words in Romans 16. Remember, I said earlier this year, Romans is essentially Galatians on steroids. So Romans is a great place to run to because it kind of gives us deeper commentary on Paul's thoughts. And this is what he says in Romans 16, 17, at the end of the letter. So he's written an even longer letter than Galatians and gone into even more theological depth about what the gospel is. And so at the end of that letter, so after all of that doctrinal truth, he's been feeding the Romans. Similar to the doctrinal truth he's giving the Galatians, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Did you catch that? We unite over the truth, Paul says, in the same way that we divide over the truth. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth here. The doctrine that you have been taught, Paul says, the truth of the gospel preserved for you. That's the language he uses in Galatians. It's the same kind of thought. This doctrine that you've been taught, he says in Romans, in Galatians, he says, the truth of the gospel that I have preserved for you, that I've protected for you, it ought to cut off the head of silly divisions and gossip within the church. But the same doctrine will also avoid those who demean Christ and pervert the truth and cause divisions. Now we see this exact posture in Galatians, don't we? When common truth, common gospel accuracy is established, what's the result? Take my hand, brother. We're unified. We're together for the gospel. But when the gospel is attacked, unity is sacrificed. Sacrificed for the sake of truth. For the sake of unity, that is truth-based unity, Paul calls for truth-based division. Does that make sense? For the sake of unity, that is truth-based unity, unity in accord with the doctrines of Christ, Paul will call for truth-based division. And that's not against the unity that glorifies God. Romans 16, 17, he says, Avoid them! They are smooth talkers. They are tickling your ear, he says in Timothy. Avoid them! Because they stand against the truth. It's going to look like disunity to the people in the world. But the purity of the bride is at stake. I don't know how Paul could make any clearer how he relates doctrine and unity. They don't have to be opposed. But for Paul, doctrine is always the basis for unity. Without the common doctrine they had been taught, unity would not have been real Christian unity. So he is willing to call for truth-based disunity. Avoid them. Divide from them for the sake of of real truth-based unity. In other words, when someone departs from sound doctrine that Paul had taught, he sees this as a greater threat to unity than the disunity caused by avoiding such people. 
if somebody departs from the gospel, it's more unifying to avoid them than it is if they've departed from the gospel and we attempt to stay together. Because in the long run, that will destroy the church. If we say, how can that be? How, how can dividing from a false teacher who rises up in the church promote unity in the church? The answer is that the only unity that counts for unity is that which is, per, which is rooted and tied to Christ and to an accurate understanding of who he is. Why is circumcision such a big deal? Why are works of the law such a huge hang-up for Paul? Why are these little gospel addendums that we stick on the back of the gospel? Sometimes subtly, and we don't even maybe realize it. Why are they such a big deal, Paul says? Because they confuse Christ. They obscure Christ from our eyes. That's why they matter. And so you isolate from false teachers. You avoid them because it preserves real unity. Now, we should not be a people. We should not be a church. We should not be believers who treat unity as inconsequential. Unity is important. It's significant. It really does glorify God. And there are sinful examples of disunity in the church that dishonor God, right? We can think of many examples of them. Some of you might be at Providence because you've experienced this sort of discord and backbiting and infighting at some other place. It's tragic. There's people who, who don't go to church anymore because that's what they've experienced. Sinful disunity of that kind. So we shouldn't treat, treat unity as if it's inconsequential. But don't fail to realize that truth-driven unity sometimes needs to purge in order to preserve. That's what Paul describes in Galatians. You think of it this way. It's a helpful, I think Sam Crabtree put it this way. The way to keep the second commandment, in other words, love your neighbor as yourself, is not by abandoning the first commandment. Love God intensely with all your being. You don't obey the second by forgetting the first. Clarity on important things, and nothing is more important than the gospel, is a means to unity. People who cherish the same truths find themselves unified, seemingly without effort. A great example of this are ministries like Together for the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition. In those meetings, you have people all over the spectrum on issues like baptism and spiritual gifts and are you cessationist, are you continuationist? What's your belief about the end times? Do you drip them or do you dunk them? What do you do? What's your worship look like? Does anybody raise their hands? Do you use a bass guitar and drums? Do you only sing from the Psalter? There's all those views present in those meetings. But they are together for the gospel. They are a coalition for the gospel. They've recognized those differences aren't just mundane. They're not necessarily inconsequential, but they pale in comparison to protecting and preserving and promoting a unity that stands together at the foot of the cross. That says, I will take your hand any day of the week because we love the gospel together. That is what is preeminent. That is what is most important. Paul and John and James and Cephas, it's not like they're monolithic. 
It's not like they have perfectly unified views on everything. I bet they've got some different ministry strategies. Maybe Paul prays a little differently than Peter does in the service. Maybe James's sermons are a little bit different. Maybe John has a different philosophy of pastoral care, or at least a different way it plays out. I'll bet it does. Have you ever read John's letters? They're sometimes a little bit more comforting than Paul's. Not if we read Paul's rightly, but Paul's got an edge, man, and needs to have an edge. But they are united in the gospel. And we need to know the difference. The difference between matters of personal preference and divine command. There are non-negotiable doctrines. You can't budge on the full humanity and full divinity of Christ. You can't budge on the Trinity. You can't budge on the doctrine of God and who God is in all of His majesty and all of His glory and the way the Word describes Him. You can't budge on the authority and inerrancy of the Word. You can't budge on the Gospel. But we need to know and recognize while there are non-negotiables on which the faith stands and falls, there are also debatable doctrines. Not unimportant doctrines, but things that we should be much slower to divide over. Areas where Scripture speaks, and it's not as unambiguously clear as it is when it talks about Christ and Him crucified. We unite to preserve and promote those things that are of first importance. And there are areas also of personal conviction where people read Scripture and legitimately feel the Spirit calling them to live out a command of Scripture in this practical way, X, Y, or Z. But Scripture doesn't actually prescribe X, Y, or Z. Scripture says, do this. And their personal conviction is, doing this, for me, looks like X, Y, or Z. The person that says and reads, do this, and says it looks like A, B, or C for me, as long as both of these practical ways of living out that command are faithful in their own ways to the command, should be able to hold hands in unity. The purpose of Together for the Gospel isn't to collapse all denominational distinctions of the, of the attendees. There are legitimate disagreements. They aren't necessarily insignificant, but they also aren't the gospel. And this applies locally as well. You can think of a lot of examples. Worship. You know, there's, there's churches where we have a service at 8 o'clock and we have a service at 10 o'clock. Not because we've run out of room, but because we've got 30 people at 8 o'clock who absolutely refuse to worship the way the people at 10 o'clock worship. It is wrong! Those songs have been written in the last 30 years. They are wrong. And the people at 10 o'clock are just as bad. They're so old-fashioned. I don't want to sing these boring songs. When really they should be looking at the Word of God and saying, you know what the Word of God holds up? Worship God biblically. Worship Him with all your heart, passionately, raising your hands, singing, engaging. Worship Him with songs that are rooted in Scripture that are rooted in good theology. And sometimes they'll be a little bit more quiet. And sometimes they'll be a little bit louder. 
And maybe you worshiping with all your heart is your eyes are open and you're looking up towards heaven. And maybe the guy next to you has both his arms up in the air. And he's yelling out of tune at the top of his lungs, singing as hard as he can. And you're just thinking, that is horrible music. We can still unite together. Just go sit on the other side of the room. Not really. But do you get the point? Another illustration, the call to raise our children. Parents are called, right? Raise your children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. This is a non-negotiable command. Biblically, that's what parents, Christian parents are called to do. Raise your children to love God, to understand who He is, to fear Him. Raise your children to want to walk with Him all their lives. And there can be diversity in the way each family seeks to implement that and live it out. Parents are called to lead and instruct their children. Now, the Bible isn't a how-to book for life. Well, yes, if you turn to page 745 in your pew Bibles, you will see the chapter on how to biblically get your children up in the morning and lead them to the breakfast table. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 10 this morning. It informs us that at 6.30 a.m., God instructs us to set the alarm. If the child snoozes the alarm, they should be reprimanded once and informed that in their disobedience of the parent, they are disobeying God and it is sin. Should the child persist and snooze the alarm a second time, the child should be informed they will not receive breakfast and should instead spend that time praying in repentance before God. Should the child persist even beyond... No, that's not how the Bible works. But it does say raise your kids to love Jesus. Raise your kids to know Him. So here's family A, and they have really strong convictions that it looks like this. That's great. If they're not unbiblical, they're not wrong convictions, I'd love to see them living that out in their family. And here's family B. And they've got different convictions. Still seeking to obey the same command, but doing it differently. What's a conviction from Scripture for one family might not be the same for someone else. When parents set standards for their homes in these areas where Scripture doesn't speak explicitly or in detail of this is how this looks like lived out, kids should obey, but other families, while seeking to obey the general call to lead and instruct, may not share the same convictions. These families shouldn't ridicule the more conservative family. You'd see that happen, right? Yeah, they're so legalistic. Why are they so hardcore about how they see that? I mean, that's just so weird. That's not unity. That's not what Paul is calling us to in Galatians. But on the other side, the families who maybe hold to more stringent or more conservative interpretations or convictions that they feel the Holy Spirit has given shouldn't condemn others for exercising their own wisdom in those matters of preference. Right? It's called living with one another in the truth of the gospel peacefully. The truth of the gospel unites us. Not in artificial ways, obsessed with rule-keeping and establishing extensive extra-biblical codes of conduct. The gospel unites us in the truth of Christ crucified. Listen how Paul puts this in Philippians 1.27. It's just another way of explaining what he wants to have happening in Galatia. What he's experiencing when he grabs the hand of John and Cephas and James. Philippians 1, 27 and 2, 2. Only let your manner of life 
be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let me hear that you are clinging to the truth of Christ and him crucified and that you're doing it together. Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I would picture it like this. A practical illustration of the way the truth of the gospel is meant to unite us. The gospel levels the playing field, right? It makes a universal claim that all of us outside of Christ stand under the just condemnation of God. That all of us outside of Christ need a Savior. That all of us outside of Christ have rebelled from God, have disobeyed Him, have turned our backs from Him. We've done God wrong. And the only reason we're breathing is because God is gracious to us. And what does the gospel say? Come. Come to this tree on this hill and see the Son of God. He's nailed to this tree. He's hanging here, dying for you. And come and get as close as you can and grab the feet of the cross and let the blood wash down and let it wash you clean. I love how the hymn says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and all who sit beneath that flow. That's what the gospel does. That's how it unites us. We come and we gather together at the foot of the cross and we cling to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We cling to the fact that there's nothing else that is sufficient. There's nothing that's added to Christ. We cling to Christ. Died for our sins, risen and seated at the right hand of God. And we cling there. And if we're clinging there, we can't help but be together, right? That's what Paul is saying. If you understand and protect the truth of the gospel, if it draws you and you love it and you want to drink deeply of it and you want to know it, you want to taste its power, you want to be changed by it, you want to gather there and look up and pray, Spirit, make me look like Him. I want to look like Jesus. It will bring unity because you all will be coming and gathering and pressing into the same place. So yes, the truth of the gospel unites us because it saves us all in the same way. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I pray that you would give us fresh clarity from the Spirit-inspired words of Paul from the pen and what he wrote in Galatians. Give us greater clarity. Give us greater commitment. Give us a greater yearning to know and love and cherish and live out the implications of the gospel in our lives. Give us greater fortitude to stand in the midst of a culture and a world 
that does not understand. They can't understand without you revealing it to them, Lord. So give us grace in recognizing that they don't understand. We were the same way, Lord. We confess that. Help us to see and remember that. But God, would you also, as we gather and press in and cling to the cross, would you give us the inevitable unity of the Spirit? That our manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That we would stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that in that unity, here at Providence and throughout the whole world, your church, your people, your ransomed sheep would stand more confidently, would believe more fully and more peacefully in Jesus. That they would be strengthened by the unity of your church at the feet of Jesus. Would you do this for the glory of Jesus, for the glory of your name, for the glorious truth of the gospel and the glorious unity of your people gathered on that truth. Amen.